This is Macro Horizons, episode 58. Your move, JP. Presented by BMO Capital Markets. I'm your host, Ian Lingen, here with John Hill and Ben Jeffrey to bring you our thoughts from the trading desk for the upcoming week of March 2nd. And as we watch our projected retirement date slip into the next century, we find ourselves thankful to have the opportunity to discuss interest rates that are positive. For now. views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. Each week, we offer an updated view on the U.S. rates market and a bad joke or two. But more importantly, the show is centered on responding directly to questions submitted by listeners and clients. We also end each show with our musings on the week ahead. Please feel free to reach out on Bloomberg or email me at ian.lyngen at bmo.com with questions for future episodes. We value your input and hope to keep the show as interactive as possible. So that being said, let's get started. So Ian, we got record low tenure yields, and then record low tenure yields, and then record low tenure yields. But we also got record low 30-year yields, and then record low 30-year yields, as well as record low 30-year yields. So clearly the market is in a version of freefall, both for equity prices and for treasury yields. That doesn't mean that there won't come a point where we see some stabilization as investors simply say that, okay, this price action has gone too far. Even if the Fed does ultimately have to cut rates by 50 basis points in March, we still shouldn't sustainably see 10-year yields below 1%. Well, On one hand, we certainly do agree with that logic, although at the end of the day, we do see zero handle tens as a distinct possibility in the run up to or immediately after the March FOMC meeting. That was a much more dramatic call before 10 year yields dipped to 115. The shape of the yield curve is doing by and large what we would expect it to do. We're seeing a steepening impulse or no impulse. The flatness that we have seen has been in the three-month bills versus tens. That curve has inverted a bit further, very consistent with the end of a business cycle, also very consistent with the run-up to a Fed rate cut. So all the signs are pointing toward the Fed being prompted into action, if not in March, then in April. My biggest concern is that the Fed pushes back against what's being priced into the market. We see a more dramatic flattening of the curve. And instead of a dip slightly below 1% 10-year yields, we get something even more shocking, call it 75 basis point 10-year yields. That's going to be very difficult for the market to come back from, especially with the broader backdrop of a dimmer global economic outlook combined with negative rates increasing as a proportion of the overall sovereign debt profile. It's almost a moot point to cover some of the economic data that came out this last week. However, one aspect does warrant acknowledging, and that's the core PCE underperformed. It underperformed in a way that isn't troubling unto itself, especially given the implications of a supply chain disruption, which will put upward pressure on prices, presumably in the second quarter. 
However, Friday's disappointing core PCE print does create a reasonable touchstone for the Fed to use in case some members do need more fundamental justification for cutting rates in March. The series of Treasury auctions all tailed. Now, that's a relatively rare event, but not all that surprising given the choppiness of the price action and the magnitude of the rally. On one hand, it's concerning that longer-term investors weren't willing to pay up for supply. But on the other hand, given the panicked nature of a lot of the price action, it really will not function as the typical directional tell for the broader interest rate markets. Tuesday's consumer confidence figures for February were surprisingly strong given what's going on with the coronavirus. Now, part of the measuring issue suggests that the timing reflected in those consumer confidence figures didn't necessarily capture this most recent leg of viral concerns. Nevertheless, we've been impressed with how consumer confidence overall has managed to hold in throughout the year. Now, the recent sell-off in equities might put significant downward pressure on confidence for the month of March, but that remains to be seen, and clearly something the Fed is certainly cognizant of and would contribute to the building case for a quicker monetary policy response, i.e. March or April, rather than midsummer or beyond. So, yeah, couldn't put it much better, Ben. Fact of the matter is that we have seen record low 30s, record low 10-year yields. The market is now aggressively pricing in the odds that the Fed delivers at least a 25 basis point rate cut when they meet in the middle of March. The sell-off in equities has been rather dramatic. What's the most compelling part of the move in stocks, at least from my perspective, is the spike that it triggered in equity volatility. With the VIX back above levels that we saw at the end of 2018, when the Fed stopped hiking rates, it's difficult to imagine a scenario in which the Fed doesn't ultimately have to do something. One of the things that I've been contemplating, at least on the margin, are the political ramifications from what is playing out in the market at this point. So envision a world in which the coronavirus leads to such a material impact on the real economy, both globally and domestically, that the U.S. finds itself either in an outright recession or at least flirting with one. That will materially undermine Trump's re-election bid, and if Sanders still appears to be the most likely Democrat to get the nomination, fast forward to November, Sanders is in the White House. That can't be good for equities. That certainly wouldn't be good for the broader business outlook, regardless of how many of Bernie's policy ambitions were actually implemented. So the focus on politics, I think, makes sense. Obviously, this past week has 100% just been a coronavirus story. Data didn't matter. Auctions didn't matter. It's all about the outbreak. Do you think with Super Tuesday coming up on Tuesday? That's super. That we'll actually be able to trade something other than coronavirus fears, at least temporarily? One would think so. However, if recent experience is any guide, it will be a short blip knee jerk. I have had a couple of astute clients point out that part of what might be currently driving the correction in equities is this idea that an undermining of Trump's reelection odds is actually significantly negative for risk assets. Again, coupled with the coronavirus 
and all of the supply chain issues implied with it. You mentioned the Fed will have to move. Fully agree. We've looked at moments when the front end had priced this extent of easing in the past 30, 40 years, whatever. The Fed's always ended up having to follow through. Fair enough. Really sharp tightening of financial conditions. Fed ends up cutting rates. The question then turns to when, how much, and how many times. And uh, while the March FOMC meeting is the logical place, I've heard increasing rumblings of the possibility of an emergency cut even before then. How much weight do you put on that idea? There's certainly precedent for an emergency ease. If they were to deliver an emergency ease, there are a lot of risks with that. The primary one being that it suggests the severity of the price action has really spooked the Fed. It's one thing for the Fed to shift the rhetoric on the margin and say, oh, okay, this is a material reassessment of the broader prospects for the economy. Come the middle of March, if things haven't improved, they deliver a 25 or even 50 basis point rate cut. For them to do it intermediate would be indicative of a Fed that is far more concerned about the coronavirus than is currently priced in. And frankly, we would very quickly see the front end of the market price to a zero yield or the effective lower bound in the two-year sector, let's call it 35, 40 basis points, simply because if you cut 25 or 50 before the March meeting, the implication is that the Fed will have to do more later as well. And just in terms of timing, the March meeting is only two and a half weeks away. And given what we've heard from Fed speakers so far, at least, they still seem to be of the mind that it is prudent to wait and see the actual economic data before evaluating a monetary policy decision. Now, to be fair, there's a lot more downside in stocks that could happen between now and then. But the fact that the scheduled meeting is still relatively close, I think, supports the notion that an intermeeting ease won't be necessary. One idea I think is kind of compelling is given the global nature of the shock, it's not obvious that the Fed should move in isolation. Sure, the Fed is kind of the de facto central bank to the world. We've mentioned that before. But one could imagine a world where the Fed, Bank of Canada, Bank of England, ECB, BOJ, dot, 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 have some concerted global effort to try to ease monetary policy. Of course, at the end of the day, the coronavirus doesn't care at all where overnight funding levels are. But to the extent that a coordinated response could help cushion the blow, I think that would help risk sentiment somewhat. One aspect of the timing, which is really the issue at the moment of all this, is the Fed's pre-meeting radio silence that commences after this upcoming week. So if we are going to hear anything from the Fed that's designed to set the stage for something either coordinated in terms of global monetary policy or simply an acknowledgement that the Fed is going to fulfill the market's ambitions and cut rates that will happen sooner rather than later. John, something you said that's particularly interesting is the virus doesn't care about interest rates. Is that because it doesn't have to take a mortgage out on its home? But regardless, it highlights a discussion we've been having and the market's been having in that what will the most consequential economic fallout be from this outbreak? Is it on the supply side with raw goods and materials sourcing issues or on the demand side, by which I mean people choosing to stay home, not go out to eat, not go out shopping? I think the interest rate side of that argument and lower borrowing costs would certainly help assuage some worries on the supply front. Firms can take advantage of cheaper money in order to offset any problems that arise from goods transfer issues. However, if individuals are concerned about getting sick, lower borrowing costs are not going to inspire them to return to quote unquote life as normal. 
I think the important nuance here is to get, sure, lower interest costs help firms on the margin, but there is no clearing price to go through a quarantine. If you have a complete shutdown, travel restrictions, whatever, it doesn't matter if the exchange rate moves a little bit. It doesn't matter if LIBOR moves 10, 20 basis points. It's not a clearing price problem. It's a sudden stop in the market problem. This makes it inherently different than last year's trade war. Tariffs went up, currency shifted, sure there was some feed through into companies, but the market could re-equilibrate. I think my concern is that if you look at the globalized nature of supply chains at this point, you could just have a sudden stop where it almost doesn't matter what price you might pay, you just literally can't get your hands on the stuff. That leads to a large negative aggregate supply shock and upward pressure on prices. So that's stagflation. And I think that stagflation has to be one of the primary concerns of the Fed at this point, and really a solid rationale for cutting rates. The other aspect of it is, to your point, John, the implicit increase in the cost of goods is going to put even further downward pressure on corporate margins. So consumption is off because people are afraid to leave their homes to go to public venues. The supply chain overall has slowed down goods that are available. Corporate profits are going to take a hit there. The next level of that, and this is what the Fed is trying to avoid, is profits get squeezed. Companies then decide, "Mm, I don't think I need all of these employees. We see a rationalization of the size of the labor force. That increases the unemployment rate, therefore further undermining consumer confidence, and that hits spending. Really, if the Fed is going to cut. That's the ultimate end game that they're trying to avoid. We've talked about how the virus doesn't care about interest rates, but one thing that I think is really, really important at the moment is if we look back at prior instances of sharp tightening in financial conditions, say since the financial crisis, in each of those moments, there was a person who could do something to make things easier. For example, the debt limit negotiations. Two humans come together and decide not to default. The trade war, once again, these are negotiations. These are things that can be solved by a human. If we think about the impact of the virus, for countries to try to severely curtail the spread, those actions in and of themselves are growth negative. So, for example, if you quarantine an area, you set up travel restrictions, you suddenly stop allowing imports from a certain area, whatever the option is, those further exacerbate the economic problem even if they make the health problem a little bit better. Beyond the supply shock, that's also a huge potential hit to aggregate demand, just as people freeze up, pull back. And I guess that's a very long-form way of saying that we are at an extremely precarious moment. Sure, we could see a V-shaped recovery and everything ends up well, but this also could be a sudden stop, which tips us over into at least a temporary contraction. And I think implicit in that is... Is it a V-shaped recovery, a U-shaped recovery, or a U-shaped recovery? And it's that latter scenario that really does justify 10-year yields below 1%. So zero-handle tens are looking more and more like a real probability in the very near term. Ian, as somewhat of a counterpoint, what do you say to the argument that this drop in stocks actually might have been somewhat of a welcome development? I mean, given the stellar performance of equities over the past two years, there was already calls of a bubble, financial excess. So maybe a degree of give back was overdue. Well, it's certainly a welcome development for anyone who is long treasuries. But for the Fed, who has been concerned about asset bubbles and the 
systemic risk that they create as long as the move stops where it is or we don't see a, another leg lower in equities, there's a reasonable argument that the Fed would be content to see a little bit of the air taken out of the bubble that could be the equity market. The problem then becomes that if the market stops selling off, it's implicitly because investors believe that the Fed's going to step in. So it's somewhat of a self-fulfilling dynamic which would come into focus at the March FOMC meeting. That self-fulfilling dynamic is already manifesting itself in valuations. If I look at the implied one-year rate, six years forward, and nine years forward, both of those are below 1.5%. So if you're trying to make an argument that, hey, things are optimistic, maybe we'll try to avoid a recession, all else equal that far out over the medium term, one year should be somewhere around neutral. Ian, I think the important point you made there was, as we've been going forward, the Fed keeps lowering and lowering rates in order to sustain the expansion. Fair enough, they've pulled it off, at least to this point. Does that mean that neutral isn't actually at 2.5%? What if it is that 1.5% level that the forwards are currently indicating? Ask the Bank of Japan. Ask the ECB. And I think that that is the biggest risk at this moment is, in fact, what occurred in the JGB market and is currently playing out in Europe is the path forward for the U.S., uh, whether that means that the real neutral rate is 50 basis points or 150 basis points remains to be seen. One of the things we certainly learned in 2018, 2019 was that it's not 240. And realistically, it's probably not 158 either. Well, guys, not our most uplifting podcast. Well, everything is going down. And to the right. Oh. In the week ahead, we will see the final week for FedSpeak ahead of the upcoming meeting. Now, this has a few implications, not least of which being the official take on the massive rally that we have seen in treasuries. The fact that twos, threes, and fives are all below 1% is pretty telling about the market's expectations for monetary policy in the near term. If the Fed is even on the margin inclined to push back against what the market is pricing, that would need to occur earlier in the week. Now, certainly there has been some chatter about the potential for an intermediate ease that seems highly unlikely and a bit reactionary from our perspective, but it's not completely off the table. It does ultimately come down to the continued sell-off in equities. If we see the major indices off another 5 to 10%, the impact on volatility will be difficult for the Fed to ignore, and that's a primary scenario in which one might envision the Fed jumping in before the March FOMC meeting. We do get some economic data, although to be fair, it's been a very long time since the Treasury market's broader directionality has been based on the U.S. economy. Nonetheless, it's February's non-farm payrolls report. The employment market has been very solid over the course of the last, frankly, 24 to 36 months. But any indication that hiring has turned a corner, the unemployment rate is experiencing some upward pressure, would be yet another justification for the market to be at its current levels and also contribute to the case for the Fed to cut in the near term. We've been watching the shape of the yield curve, particularly twos, tens, and given we have spent the bulk of the last year, year and a half, attempting to time the cyclical re-steepening of the curve, we can't help but take at least a modicum of satisfaction from the re-steepening that has brought 30 basis points 
for the 210 spread back into play. Now, ultimately, the next 65 to 70 basis points is going to be steeper and not flatter. However, the ability to break out into much steeper territory really does come down to the willingness of the Fed to act and the willingness of the Fed to act decisively. The policy air flattening versus reflationary steepening dynamic continues to be in play. So fast forward to March 18th, if the Fed doesn't deliver in the way that the market is currently anticipating, that would materially challenge some of the steepening that we're seeing and could very quickly put inversion back on the radar. And let us not forget the February jobs report will be the first without the traditional press lockup. We do expect that the news services will be able to provide the typical headlines more or less. However, the analysis and the immediate take will probably be delayed. Does that create a great deal of uncertainty or volatility around this report? Less so than if the market had actually been trading off of domestic economic data. So if jobs were at this point the focus, we would be a bit more nervous about that than we are in the current situation. So on some level, it's not the worst time to roll out this new transition in the process. Nonetheless, we will be anxiously awaiting to see how the new trading reality plays out on Friday morning at 8.30 a.m. We've reached the point in this week's episode where we'd like to offer our sincere thanks and condolences to anyone who has managed to make it this far. And we only have one reminder this week. Please wash your hands. Thanks for listening to Macro Horizons. Please visit us at bmocm.com backslash macrohorizons. As we aspire to keep our strategy effort as interactive as possible, we'd love to hear what you thought of today's episode. So please email me directly with any feedback at ian.lingen at bmo.com. You can listen to this show and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider. This show and resources are supported by our team here at BMO, including the FIC Macro Strategy Group and BMO's marketing team. This show has been produced and edited by Puddle Creative. This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns Incorporated, and BMO Capital Markets Corporation. Together, BMO, who are involved in fixed income and foreign exchange sales and marketing efforts. Accordingly, it should be considered to be a product of the fixed income and foreign exchange businesses generally, and not a research report that reflects the views of disinterested research analysts. Notwithstanding the foregoing, this podcast should not be construed as an offer or the solicitation of an offer to sell or to buy or subscribe for any particular product or services, including, without limitation, any commodities, securities, or other financial instruments. We are not soliciting any specific action based on this podcast. It is for the general information of our clients. It does not constitute a recommendation or a suggestion that any investment or strategy referenced herein may be suitable for you. It does not take into account the particular investment objectives, financial conditions, or needs of individual clients. Nothing in this podcast constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a representation that any investment or strategy is suitable or appropriate to your unique circumstances, or otherwise constitutes an opinion or a recommendation to you. BMO is not providing advice regarding the value or advisability of trading in commodity interests, including futures contracts and commodity options, or any other activity which would cause BMO or any of its affiliates to be considered a commodity trading advisor under the U.S. Commodity Exchange Act. BMO is not undertaking to act as a swap advisor to you or in your best interests in you, to the extent applicable, will rely solely on advice from your qualified independent representative in making hedging or trading decisions. This podcast is not to be relied upon in substitution for the exercise of independent judgment. 
you should conduct your own independent analysis of the matters referred to herein, together with your qualified independent representative, if applicable. Emo assumes no responsibility for verification of the information in this podcast. No representation or warranty is made as to the accuracy or completeness of such information, and BMO accepts no liability whatsoever for any loss arising from any use of or reliance on this podcast. BMO assumes no obligation to correct or update this podcast. This podcast does not contain all information that may be required to evaluate any transaction or matter, and information may be available to BMO and or its affiliates that is not reflected herein. BMO and its affiliates may have positions, long or short, and affect transactions or make markets in securities mentioned herein, or provide advice or loans to, or participate in the underwriting or restructuring of the obligations of issuers and companies mentioned herein. Moreover, BMO's trading desks may have acted on the basis of the information in this podcast. For further information, please go to bmocm.com slash macrohorizons slash legal.